I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 244 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guests today are Dr. Liat Suklarski and Maria Veronica Laguna. They're here to talk about their new book, From Grad School to Private Practice, a roadmap for mental health clinicians. Maria Veronica Laguna is a licensed clinical social worker and certified psychoanalytic psychotherapist. She works in private practice in New York City and is a faculty member of the Metropolitan Center for Training in Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy. She specializes in mental health treatment related to immigration issues. Be sure to visit her website, psychoanalysisandsocialjustice.com. Dr. Liat Shaklarski is an assistant professor in the Department of Social Work at Ramapo College of New Jersey. She received her PhD for Hunter College, New York. She opened her private practice and grew it into a group practice. This is her second book examining the development of mental health clinicians. Her 2021 book, A Contemporary Approach to Clinical Supervision, The Supervisee Perspective, discusses effective supervision. You can find links to all of these things at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast and all of my other creative endeavors at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl, where we do post exclusive content for all our patrons every week. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon community. We wouldn't be here without you. I can share a little bit that um, I used to do a lot of um, fee-for-service clinical work uh, in community mental health as a fee-for-service. So that model that you get paid for the service that you provide. And oftentimes when client would not show up or will cancel late, I would find myself sitting in almost like one unquote doing nothing or doing some paperwork. So whatever considered a billable hour is no, no longer a billable hour. And later on, I transitioned to private practice. It's great. So I, I, I went through that. Um, it was painful and yet overcome it. Um, the, the idea for the book actually came from a work that I did with one of my patients who uh, was a fee-for-service. And um, hearing from him about the the pain of doing the, this kind of work is what uh, really motivated me to write to write about it and to write a book. And um, in the process of um, inviting different people to write, I I met Maria and wanted to offer her to write a, a chapter about um, postgraduate training, uh, her experiences in for service in in a in a psychodynamic clinic. And just like, uh, I, I guess I never told you that, but I fell in love. And there was something about our bouncing back ideas that I would say something and she's like, yeah, but we can, you can do it differently. Yeah, it, was, it was like love at, at first soon. We, we hit it up immediately. And I think part of my, my main impression was like, oh my God, all the things that I've always thought about 
working in outpatient setting as a fee-for-service. I felt so validated in, in Leah's questions and concerns. And, and when I started sharing my own experience, I was like, yeah, this is exactly what we want to write about. So it went from me being invited to a chapter to being co-writers and editors. And it's it's been a very fun journey. Well, it looks like an amazing book. And like I said, right when we started talking, I wish I had this book when I was finishing grad school because they really don't prepare you for what you have no. to do. You're kind of like just doing next step to next step and like just trying to figure it out as you go along. I luckily had like somebody that was a year before me in school that I became friends with and she kind of helped me through each step of school and everything. And I'm mm -hmm. so thankful for her. Shout out to Heather Farrow. I love you. <laughs> but I don't know what I would have done without Heather. You know, it's like she got me through everything. Yeah, and I think we've all had people like that, and, and precisely we wanted to create a book that was like the one-stop place for for people to get those questions answered, and sometimes even knowing what questions to ask, because it's basically 99% of the book is everything you wanted to know about fee-for-service, and you were too afraid to ask. Yeah, yeah and especially for people... Like I try to really gear the podcast. I know people listen in all kind of ages and levels of training and experience and everything, but I really try to gear things towards people that are starting out and have those kinds of questions. And especially for people who are in school that maybe they're the first generation in their family to go to college or to higher education and they don't have anybody to ask about what it's like or the family doesn't understand or their parents don't understand. You know, it's really helpful to have people kind of lay it out for you like this. Yeah. 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 I think that the, also the nature of um, um, social work specifically, but I, I think about other mental health um, degrees and uh, that you, because you're doing a lot of field work voluntarily during your MSW, for example, then it's almost that you're, it's okay for you to work for free to some degree once you're um, out in the field. And the reality of the fee for service is that. Um, we have part of it in, in one of our chapters, what is the fee and what is the service? Because you think that you're actually going to get paid for every um, service, but the reality is that you don't know what's your paycheck between uh, week to week. Uh, depends on the amount of clients that are coming in. So I think that there is systematically in, in, in the sense of social justice, we have a problem here. Um, fee for service in private practice is very different than fee for service when you do it in the clinic, uh, when you're still working towards your um, clinical licensing. So we really want to prepare our readers to um, work with that phenomena since we understand that we can't make yet cannot make changes in the macro level, but we want our readers to be aware that what can they do in order to minimize the amount of cancellation and no-shows and really to be more in control of the amount of money that they're making, um, which is think that other thing that we have, when we wrote that book, we realized that we don't talk a lot about money when we uh, deal with social work. And it's just like that thing about like, yeah, just be happy with what you have, which awesome but at the same time um we're operating from billable hours kind of approach that we want our readers to feel entitled and feel good about no i'm charging i want to be able to be in, in charge of the constellations and uh, and protect myself in that sense yeah because it's already a field where people going into it are helping right and so a lot of people going into it too are used to kind of Denying themselves in service of the other a bit, which can be very admirable, but also, you know, you need to live. <laughs> you and, don't and want to also, be completely depleted. Right. And to model for patients that it's okay to take care of ourselves. 
and, and put value to our, our work. Absolutely. So what kinds of things are in the book? Hmm. Uh, you want to go? I want to go with my favorite. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I love the, the research part that we did. I think that's, to me, I mean, uh, um, I don't know, we, we, you and I, Leah, we talk much about it, but I think aside from the step-by-step how to do your clinical practice, the the research project that we conducted in which we interviewed how many? Quite a few uh, clinicians yeah. from different backgrounds yeah. about their fee-for-service experience. And it was a mixed-method study, so we did a quantitative part and a qualitative where we interviewed people from different stages in their career. And it was so, so rewarding. And we learned so much about the strategies that therapists use to survive in the fee-for-service world in clinics. For example, write your progress notes when the patient cancels or how to make the most out of those times of those services that are not billed and therefore are not paid. Um, And the importance of community, right? That was a a big takeaway from, from that chapter as well that it can be a very isolating work yeah. and that finding networks, good supervision, it's so important. Yeah. And so I think that what our participants really found is that there is a pros and cons, like every job. One of the things that stood out for them is the variety of clients that you you expose and you can see. Um, but they also talked about the burnout um, and and this, um, this idea that um, you really don't know how who will come and who will not come. You can come to work and, and expect to see eight clients, but you would see just um, six or five, sometimes less, sometimes more. Um, and for many of them, it was just like a, a, a transitional time. I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to do the fee-for-service work, and then I would move into private practice and um, and be on my own. But uh, to circle, just to st- take a step back in terms of the, what's the book is like we're starting with macro, just talking about fee for service in general, and then talking about fee for service in community mental health and in the mental health field, which is very different than seeing like a physician in the hospital. Um, and and so just chapter one is really about what what are we looking at at um, what does it mean to be a fee for service uh, mental health clinician, and then chapter two, as Maria was uh, referring, that was really the study. So we took. We, we heard about it from the literature, that was the macro, and now we're, we're going to hear it from first-hand experiences of, um, of those who are doing the work themselves. And, um, and we, we love the, the research, it, and it was very, very powerful. And then we go into um, um, into few chapters that were really understanding what are some of the ingredients that you need to have in order to be successful in doing uh, fee-for-service work. Um, so we have a chapter written by a supervisor in the agency that really talks about um, how to handle the the no shows, how to speak about cancellations, how to use supervision in the agency in in a, in the right way. Um, and then we have another chapter that is actually written by um, a head uh, of a clinic, and um, and that specifically address the element of. Um, uh, what do you need to know before you get hired? How do you negotiate your um, salary? Um, what qu- question do you really need to ask? Um, so written by um, uh, the, the the director of the clinic, he gives advice in a way to our readers about what they need to know before they, um, they come in. 
Um, and then we have actually another chapter that was born while we're working on the book, what we see the, the, the more and more um, graduates of um, MSW in that sense or other clinical degrees are not just going to work to do clinical work in a clinic in community mental health, but they're also going to group practices. And so this is something that is developing and evolving um, many, many more group practices. So we have um, one person who is writing about her experience in a group practice. Um, she talks a lot about the pros and the cons and the the level of the freedom that she can have in, in, in working in a group practice. Um, and with that being said, we really wanted the, um, the book to be inclusive to, to towards all kinds of fee-for-service jobs, whether it's in a community mental health or in um, um, in a group practice, as long as you're doing clinical clinical work. Uh, should I continue? Sure. Um, then we have um, another chapter that um, um, look at the next few chapters are almost like a transition. So we we believe like at the beginning you you graduate from from school you take your first job you're doing fee for service it's quite overwhelming you try to understand how to do it how to minimize cancellations etc. And then um, you realize that you need supervision or like maybe that the supervision in the agency is not um, sufficient because it's just um, sometimes dealing, unfortunately, with uh, administrative staff, crisis intervention, et cetera, et cetera. So our next chapter um, looks at supervision. It's written by two, uh, two clinicians. One is a supervisor in an agency and another one is an external supervisor. Actually happened to be my supervisor. So when I used to work in the clinic, I would not feel that the the supervision in house in 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 the clinic is enough, and I would I would go to her, pay her privately, um, to be um, to do to talk about cases and to develop my clinical skills. So we have that chapter, and I think that um, that was Maria's idea. That at some point you're like, wow, I really need to advance my skills. I'm 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 not ahead of my client in in the in the way I'm thinking about it. And, and so we developed the, a chapter about post-graduating uh, programs. It doesn't necessarily speak about the programs, but it really talks about how to choose the right program for you. How do you know what is it that you need in order to uh, support yourself uh, in, in your career? And also like, how does it all play in your work and your personal life and all of that? So we're um, really um, covering some of the things that you need to check when you're um, deciding that you you want to do a postgraduate training and how to choose the right one for you. Um, and we wanted it to be very democratic, uh, at least in the way we try to approach it. And by the way, the whole name of the book was going to be from grad, school to, from grad school to private practice and everything in between, because we wanted to honor the fact that not everyone may have the same route. Um, and we do talk about postgraduate training, but also for people who decide not to join institutes, uh, ways to do their own like self-learning, ways to connect with other communities, um, include, including psychotherapy uh, as a vital source of, of education and learning about the self. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're trying to cover every possible aspect of it, honoring the fact that not everyone may think that private practice is the ultimate goal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like an absolutely wonderful resource, and I'm so glad that you uh, created this book together. It sounds like you found a lot of wonderful contributors as well. 
Uh, yeah, wonderful con contributors and also people that we we encounter, you know, from our past. And when I started my uh, group practice um, back in the days, I actually started with someone who was um, two years into her LMSW. And and, um, and she is actually she writes another chapter, which is the transition from fee for service uh, clinical um from community mental health to private practice. And I remember she, the, the minute that she got her LCSW, her clinical license, she said, I'm done doing group practice with you. I'm going to start my own uh, practice. And I saw that the way she did it was um, adorable and so professional and, and, um, and with so much gut and, and um, good energy because oftentimes what we see is that people are just afraid to start their own practices. Um, and so the, the next uh, phase of the book is really covering this idea of like, what do you need to do in order to start your own private practice? So she gives her own words of encouragement through her own journey into opening her private practice. But then we're really going into details in the next few chapters looking at what do what does it mean to have successful practice and also how do you use innovative technologies that there are many of them um, in order to advance yourself and, and develop like a good source of um, referrals and work um, not just do private pay you know out of pocket but also do uh, work with insurance companies uh, but without the hassle. So we have a whole chapter that really it was a literature review um, related to all the opportunities that are out there that people are not necessarily familiar with in order to advance yourself in private practice. Um, and what we did there is we re really reached out to each one of those companies and asked them to give us a statement about what do they do and how do they help clinician, how do they help client. Um, and these are all startups that have been um, developed in the last five, six years. Um, I think I want to I wanna just dedicate um, one more word to one more chapter that, again, was just developed towards the end of um, our journey of writing the book, which is about um, um, the journey to private practice for creative arts therapists. Mm. So uh, um, um, art therapist, uh, movement therapist, um, um, in the, and and. And I'm sure that there is more that I'm forgetting right now under this umbrella, but because of their licensing uh, type, it's harder for them um, to start their own private practice. And we really wanted to um, give them a voice in the book and see what are some of the challenges and, and how is one um, overcome them. So we have a chapter that is dedicated for um, the creative arts um, uh, therapist. That's wonderful. I have two very close friends who are both creative arts therapists. And yeah, it's, it seems to be so difficult and they're constantly cutting their programs. Like when I when I were first was starting out and I worked at a hospital in Brooklyn, like a New York City hospital, um, you know, we had creative arts therapists like in the inpatient units and things. And I thought, oh, this is so amazing. But after like a year of me being there, they were gone. You know, they just keep cutting their programs and their funding. And it's just the, it's so, so terrible. And I like that this chapter is written as a testimony, and it's a very realistic one that that gives a lot of hope to potential uh, art clinicians, but also very realistic, right? And that's also something else that I'm hoping people will find interesting and attractive about the book that that it's a little bit of testimony, a little bit of research, and we're hoping to save a lot of time uh, that people will spend doing research on 
what softwares to use or what venues use to advertise their practices. So it's it's basically different styles in one. Yeah, and really practical. I really wish I had this when I was starting out. I feel like everything was just like, yeah, just trying to figure out what's next. And also you're always coming off of, you know, like you mentioned, like you, you have to go to internship and you don't really get paid anything. And the whole time you're in school, you're doing all this work and you're not getting paid. And, you know, it's like you're really struggling for years building up to like trying to create your practice, you know. Yeah, and just like the um, the fear that people have, um, and especially with um, with transitioning to private practice, that there is there, there people are afraid of being self-employed. Um, that how are they going to take care of health insurance? How are they going to? What if the client doesn't show up? But then how how do we install the the um, believe in them that? you're your own boss, meaning like you can create your own policies for your own practice and, and definitely you can do it. Um, and so much of some of the chapters in the book working on around self-esteem and building the confidence that you need personally and professionally to um, to feel good about your services and what you have to offer to people and not necessarily just say, oh, don't worry about it. I, I, I won't charge you for X, Y, and Z. So I think that that's that's another thing, and and um, one more important aspect of the book is also that we have a, a chapter uh, about the the ingredients that you need in order to start private practice, starting from creating a national provider ID to the or how to use your social security number or or not, um, how to submit a claim for health insurance, what is a CPT code, like all those things that I remember myself at the beginning was was a lot of um, googling search of what what does this even mean, so it's all in the book uh, for people to 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 learn and educate themselves. Right, because for those who work at a clinic, they see those things in operation all the time, but there isn't an open line of communication in which clinicians understand how billing works or how policy works. So we wanted to bring that together to, to empower people to start their own. Absolutely. That's wonderful. And and too, like you said, that's so great to help people build up the confidence to do it on their own, because that's so true. I remember I was part-time in the hospital and part-time private practice for a few years. And I remember when I was leaving, my supervisor was like, well, good luck. I don't know how all of you leaving think that you're going to make it in private practice. And I was just like, thanks. Thanks for the support and the good word, you know? (laughs) They really yeah. scare you. But that's how they get you to work for these corporations. It's like the like the military. It's like the U.S. is never going to give everyone oh, health care in college because that's how they get people to go in the military and how they get them to work for these corporations. You know? Well, yeah, that's the thing about mission-based professions, right? That if you set boundaries or try to own your work, it's like they make you believe that you're failing. And, and that's also part of where we come and, you know, we're trying to change that narrative as well. And now we also don't have to be Ubers, the Ubers of mental health, right? We don't have to internalize the gig economy, that it is possible to start a practice where you can balance work and life. That's also some of what we're trying to convey, that it might be a difficult journey, but certainly a very rewarding one. Yeah, absolutely. And finding your own particular voice. And like you said, whether you want to like do postdoc training in an institute or if you want to like do it on your own or, you know, what kind of different models that you're interested in, you can explore so much. That's one of the things I love about the field, too, is like you can teach, you can do 
clinical work and hospitals and private practice. There's like so many different things you can end up doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually Leah and I were both wear different hats, right? Teaching, writing, yeah, supervising, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that keeps it always like fresh and interesting and new and evolving and constantly learning and doesn't get stale. No, it's quite um, quite a journey to be to teach in the MSW program and um, um, and to do the work and to supervise. Um, so there is always like clinical stuff, but also the behind the scenes of, and, and always, um, I called my group practice almost like an incubator for private practice, because I really believe that once they're, um, getting their license, the people who work with me, they need to venture and be on their own. There is no reason for them not to, to do private practice, um, and, and, um, and develop their skills uh, on their own. Um, I think it's a field that is, uh, well like is developing and um and i think that there is we now i think the pioneering of our book is that we're really inviting a conversation about it and inviting a a conversation about making money and making business um out of psychotherapy and and something that you can actually it's profitable um and it's valued because it is undervalued, like in the medical field, you know, it's it's totally undervalued and it shouldn't be because there's like a million studies showing like people are healthier, people are happier. There's so many benefits from people are in psychotherapy, like they can literally prove it like physically, you know, I was one of my rotations was like they, what, the reason we started funding was because they could prove like people that were getting dialysis if they were in therapy you know they would heal faster they would do better with transplants I used to run like a, a transplant uh, group you know for people who had just had like cardiac transplants or kidney transplants or liver transplants um, and they would heal better if they were like doing talk therapy you know so there's like so many like provable benefits <laughs> that you would think it would be more valued <laughs> yeah yeah no the, the split is still there i mean the mind body problem should no longer be a problem we, we know they're just both completely interrelated yeah absolutely and i'm not one big on things having to be proven but like they are so like come on <laughs> and for, and for development i mean people need those numbers right so i mean it's mm-hmm. good there's people devoting research efforts for that as well yeah absolutely how did you both get interested in mental health in the first place <laughs> uh I, I don't know if my mom will uh, listen to the podcast, but uh, a borderline mother is all what you need in order to get into uh, uh, the mental health field. I think that my own personal, um, I should say, deprivation in some ways is what um, led me to support and seek, um, understand myself and understand how to best help those who are um who are we, who want to do better for themselves but don't quite know how if it makes you feel better i i'm also one because of my mom and she did find that out from the podcast when <laughs> <laughs> i was talking to i think Lada oh. she had <laughs> my mom's like hey I, I thought we had a perfect relationship you should invite her for the to, to the podcast maybe 
Oh my god! So everyone can understand. My mom, <laughs> my mom doesn't speak English, so I'm lucky. But uh, same same applies for me. Narcissistic mother in my case, uh, including not having a space to process feelings and wanting to create that space. So other people that didn't have that chance or that need a a different space, uh, they can do that. Um, yeah, and in my case, psychoanalysis was pretty much a synonym for me on psychotherapy growing up. I mean, having been born, raised, and trained in Uruguay, it's that's. I mean, people think of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy as synonyms, and everything, mm-hmm. every other approach is considered very foreign. So, yes. must be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be in a culture where psychoanalysis was like ubiquitous part of the culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we yeah we practice psychoanalysis in psychiatric hospitals, prisons, public schools. Yes, wonderful. it's a standard method. It's wonderful. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Um, I think that we are both. Um, we we need to practice how to um, market ourselves better. The the beside the fact that the book is uh, unique and uh, you, you know when you, you when you write a book you always do a market analysis and that has this book is first to be um, written in the topic but in in sense of the topic is really to cover the journey so when we're thinking about our book we're thinking about so many different audience that can benefit from. Um, from the book and 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 reading it and um and also we're inviting um actually students to to um have the book because there is so much discussion that can be done um around the topic moving you know if i if i'm reflecting back to writing that book i would um i would actually uh think that we needed to write another another chapter at the beginning of the book about how to best prepare yourself while you're a student to the fee for service in terms of writing your resume proactively, get your license exam, um, sign up for an NPI, um, be, be ready with your blurb for um, Psychology Today or any other, other advertising. So I think that um, we would um, we would in many ways soon start working on the second edition uh, in the sense of covering that part. And then at the end of the book, working on once you have done enough private practice, how do you develop it to a group practice? So what is what does it mean to expand your um, psychotherapy uh, uh, one on one on one to to a group practice and and be more profitable, supervise others and and support others? Um, there is um, there is so much to speak about the quality of the work, and um, and it, we can definitely provide good quality um, for our clients, but. In order to provide good quality, you need a good space, and you need a good supervisor, and you need to be paid well. And we wanna we wanna make sure that we, when we're writing the second edition for the book, this is all um, coming in. But there was that, what we have covered in this first first edition is absolutely fantastic. But reflecting back, there is more that can be can be done. Yeah, you always think of things you can add afterwards. But it's really a fantastic because, like I said, the second I saw this book go by my my feed, I, I immediately contacted Maria. I was like, "This is amazing! <laughs> I have to talk to you too because yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything like, like it. Like you said, it's the first of its kind, and it's so important. And so many different people can use this as a fantastic resource. Yeah, we try to become the the voice, uh, the mentor that we wish we had had, 
and maybe borrowing those voices from the people that we did have. Yeah, and that's wonderful to get to work with people that have been part of your own trajectories. That must have been mm-hmm. really kind of yeah. special kind of full circle moments with that. Yeah. Well, the, the 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 clinic director, he was my supervisor. So that's that's also very special too. Yeah. And that's by the way one of the things that we are talking about in the book about connections and how mm-hmm. important it is to keep connections and and be in touch and um um and always be humble with your time of like Yes, per 30 minutes to speak with someone, exchange an email, sit for coffee, uh, because you eventually at some point you you would meet them in your future career, like things um, cross passes. Um, and the funny part about uh, writing this book through the time of COVID is Maria and I have never met in person. Uh, which is, um, um, we, we have a funny story about a good friend of mine sitting for dinner and um uh, he meets in New this, Jersey. In, in New, New Jersey, York. he meets this woman. Uh, parentheses happened to be Maria, who's saying that she wrote a book about um, about um, fee for services, and and that person says, "Oh, I have a very good friend. Her name is Liat. She's also writing in this about this topic. You guys should you should talk to each other." <laughs> Maria is saying, "Oh my God, this is the person I'm writing the book with." So our friends meet each other before we before uh, before we did yes yes that was so so funny and so you're both in manhattan and you haven't met at least then you must be in different cities no, no, <laughs> and, and, i mean it was clear your pregnancy i mean so much, yeah. so much yeah. moving places no no it's it's been yeah it started during the pandemic amazing it sounds like it's been a pretty productive couple of years then. Absolutely. Yeah, and we really want to also thank our um, our publishing house, Cognella, uh, has been super supportive, uh, accommodating when we're running late with timelines, when we need some help with certain things. Um, in, in the process of um, writing some of the chapters, there were, we, we received chapters that were just not... Um, not something that we decided that we want to publish in the book. So how do you turn down, um, which is always hard and, and painful. And, um, and and Cognella has been super supportive and, and helpful with that. So it's um, it was a very positive journey for both of us. Yes. Yeah, and it sounds like the book was evolving and expanding and growing while you were creating it. Like it kept kind of changing form a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, you for coming. For thank you for the invitation. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I've been listening to you since, since the beginning, but you know, no agenda, just let it flow. And yeah, just see what happens. Sometimes I have the book, sometimes I don't. Sometimes they're analysts, sometimes they're artists or students. Yes. And just mm. see what people are doing. That sounds interesting. Try to expose people doing things that look uh, like good and interesting things that I want to promote. And like I said, always kind of trying to center the people that are up and coming. And I always oh. try to think about that, you know. Well, in the spirit of promotion, I wanted to share one of my websites, uh, psychoanalysisandsocialjustice.com. Ooh, it's just yeah. a total labor of love where, where I mean, it's, it's a little bit behind, but I'm trying to create a, a shared database of events, videos, books, articles, anything related to psychoanalysis and social justice. You're going to see a lot of uh, rendering unconscious episodes in the website. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. How nice. And then around. So any anytime I run into something that, that might apply, I just post it there. 
And there's an Excel spreadsheet on the website where anyone can jump in. It's open to the public. Anyone can jump in um, and add their bibliography. I'm hoping it will be a, a good tool for researchers or anyone writing mm. where they can have uh, one place that you can see different bibliography and different subtopics around violence, oppression, poverty, etc. That's wonderful. What a wonderful resource. And anytime, like when your second edition comes out or any other books or events that you do, you're both welcome back individually or together. Anytime, just let me know. Just send me an email. You can always set something up. Or if you have any friends or colleagues that you think are doing good work, you know, feel free to send them my way too, because I'm always looking for good, good people. Right. Will do. Yeah, Wonderful. and don't forget to invite us for your next podcast about borderline uh, narcissistic moms. <laughs> People can relate, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank, okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Liat Shaklarsky and Maria Veronica Laguna. For more, be sure to visit Maria's website, psychoanalysisandsocialjustice.com, and check out their book, From Grad School to Private Practice, A Roadmap for Mental Health Clinicians. Links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org. As always, thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast. The song at the end of this episode is called Another Big Storm Tonight from an album I did with Carl Abrahamson called The Pathways of the Heart, available at Bandcamp. All music at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page is name your price, so enjoy. Visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Another big storm tonight. Yourself. The ego itself is a symptom, and you didn't know where the hell that had come from a minute ago, but she kind of suspected there was an unmistakable rosy red flush by a megalomaniac consumed Dracula's powdered gag, but she didn't want to draw too much attention to herself. She about Ben's last days and to enjoy cocoa platter of ices have sent it as a punishment because the victim, events of life and the world take place in himself, yet if he reflects, he, and I can tell you that there is a sweetness in that, the twigs of the cedar tree would be brought to land, planted like a willow by abundant water, would told me so I collected the branches and bundled. Caves of
sorcerers, the American beginnings. Identification may also easily tempt the analyst to take the mothers. That exteroceptive, proprioceptive, and interoceptive sensations. Intellectuals, the literary avant-garde and book shunning, and nature as such as the perfect allegorical platform. Experienced and are relieved when fuller integration is achieved. Complete and permanent integration is, in my view, never possible. The deeper and more complex the difficulties we are analyzing, the two of the Norwegian guys sit with us while another pair takes seats at. Smoke like red blood rising into the heavens and they knew sleepy, soulful eyes. He is draped with beautiful, richly covered fabrics. Time. In such recent history of there, it were to your we are quite yet. And how much even thus young then has found effect as a creature upon the unparalleled peril of consciousness, destroys that alone would berate him. Cities, his state, his laws, his inmost soul, we are nearer now. The dead to admire the scenes of the nation, shining with fossilized carbons, while the living configure secret, myself falling into a kind of hypnotic state, my eyes halfway closed, the writings of Melanie Klein, the birth of tragedy, visual arts, do you have a term for poetry inspired by music, claim that there aren't really any new, is the assiduous veiling during the performance of the tragedy of the intrinsically Dionysian effect, which, however, is so powerful that it place and give in to the urge immediately to alleviate his child. The, I don't, she replied, I leave that to you, black, but I've never really seen anything like it. If the dioramas of cinematic expectation in the half dark, when we are asleep, we oftentimes have one eye open and are able to. Some of the less popular or prominent pieces, how the hell do you explain? Consisting of an odd texture or consisting and consumption of human meat seems to have been this occasional casualness in the matter of the I 
identification with a fantasy of what we imagine ourselves and or mothers to perceive. We pass through the doorway, we dispose of our shoes and find that the scene together with the action was fundamentally and thought of as only as a vision. That the only reality is just the then why couldn't we choose to adjust that experience? Those which of itself generates the vision and celebrates it with the symbolism of dancing, music, and speech. In the vision, this belongs to one of those charred bodies and was close to those fires. Must live into a future without illusion, especially the human hair attached at the back, a wig set up. She looks very frightened. Her mouth is closed. Don't sleep here.